Hi, Fresh Head listeners, it's Will. I wanted to tell you about a new project we're launching called Fresh Ed Flux, which aims to encourage new voices in education podcasting. Are you a graduate student who wants to develop, produce, and deliver a creatively complex, multi-voiced, globally rich, narrative-style episode for Fresh Ed Flux? If so, we want to hear from you. We are interested in putting together an episode that will showcase your deep-dive storytelling, which is informed by cutting-edge ideas and issues in education broadly defined. Your episode will be made for an English-speaking audience, but could include other languages that have been translated into English, and it will be between 20 and 30 minutes long. If you are the successful candidate, you will be awarded a stipend of 2,500 US dollars, and your episode will be aired on Fresh Ed next year. I'm really excited about this project, and I encourage you to get in touch with your ideas. You can find more details at freshedpodcast.com slash flux. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash flux. Now on with today's show. Today, we look at counter-narratives to teach for all, the global network of affiliate organizations that recruit people to make two-year commitments teaching in high-need schools, an outgrowth of Teach for America and Teach First in the United Kingdom. Teach for All advances a one-size-fits-all solution to educational problems in over 53 countries. It is funded by powerful corporations and organizations, such as the Clinton Global Initiative, and has become an important actor in the global education reform movement. But what do former recruits think of Teach for All? How does Teach for All's carefully crafted message of reform translate into practice? My guests today are Jameson Brewer, Kathleen Desmarais, and Kelly McFadden, who have recently co-edited a volume called Teach for All Counter-Narratives. The book is a collection of first-hand accounts where former recruits offer powerful critiques of the organization and its methods. Jameson Brewer is an assistant professor of Social Foundations of Education at the University of North Georgia, where Kelly McFadden is a professor. Kathleen Day Murray is a professor and department head in the Department of Lifelong Education, Administration, and Policy at the University of Georgia. Jameson Brewer, Kathleen Day Murray, and Kelly McFadden, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. So the three of you wrote a book in 2015 on Teach for America, and it provided first-hand accounts, more or less, of, um, of the program by alumni, by, by core members, people who used to be in Teach for America. And in many respects, that this, this volume uh, contained counter-narratives that, that more or less critique the program in many ways. Um, what sort of reception did that book receive when it was published in 2015? So that first book... That was a collection of narratives about uh, or from Teach for America domestic United States, uh, both core members and alumni. I myself, uh, I am a 2010 Metro Atlanta Teach for America alumni. And so uh, both as a traditionally trained educator as well as a Teach for America core member, now alumni, this has always been work that I was interested in. And as I was uh, a couple of years out of my experience with TFA and doing uh, doing some critical work of the organization, uh, 
I would continually get uh, letters and emails from current core members or former core members, alumni at that point, uh, expressing some frustration with the uh, organization. Uh, and there was sort of a general theme uh, that usually rose from it that they didn't feel that they really had an outlet or a place to share these frustrations. So what I did is I uh, partnered with Kathleen to to provide a, a platform for a collection of some of these critical perspectives that, and I, I think from that, that text, it becomes clear that Teach for America as an organization had fought uh, for years to suppress and marginalize. And so that book came out in 2015. I think that the response from the organization, it was a critical response. It was a, a concerted attempt to once again marginalize the voices of these core members and alumni, which is something that we specifically critiqued them of uh, in that first uh, text. And so it, it sort of received a lot of attention, both from TFA, from TFA's supporters and defenders, but it also became, um, uh, for, for lack of a better term, the first sort of publicly facing official collection of narratives that provided a different perspective of Teach for America, other than the ones that had gone through Teach for America's filtering public relations arm. And I think that that disrupted the sort of national narrative that Teach for America had built over, at that time, 25 years, that TFA is this great organization, uh, that it, you know, it might have some struggles, but effectively everything that they do is for good. They're not hurting students. They're not hurting communities. And then here was this text where people from the inside, for the first time, were able to uh, unify their voices together and tell a different story. And, and that disruptive nature, I think, was um, difficult for Teach for America to work through uh, for the, the couple of years after the text came out. And I don't think that it was specifically because of our book, but I think that it contributed to it. Teach for America had a significant reduction in their recruitment in the United States. And, and I think that, again, that's part of what became a growing tide of a national conversation uh, of looking deeper into this organization. Did that response surprise you in any way? No. Uh, having come from the organization myself, uh, they're very intentional about putting forward the best possible image, which, which I think we can agree that every organization or corporation does, and, and that's well and fine uh, for what that's worth. But I, I think that their animosity towards people speaking out effectively reified and reinforced what some of the narratives that we had collected were trying to say is that they had for years felt as though their voices had been silenced. And then here's this multi-million dollar organization spending millions of dollars per year in their public relations, working overtime to keep those voices silent. Uh, and so again, we would, you would expect that from sort of corporations and organizations, but when we're talking about an organization that is dedicated to, in theory, to helping children, to helping students, uh, at least for me, those two things um, are difficult to square. Hmm. So fast forward five years from that uh, original collection about Teach for America, and now the three of you have teamed up to publish a collection on Teach for All, which is more or less the global organization that is trying to implement Teach for America-like programs in other countries. How did this book come about? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take this one as well. 
as soon as we published our critique of Teach for America domestic United States, I likewise received dozens and dozens of emails uh, from across the world uh, from TF All or Teach for All core members or alumni or fellows as they're called, effectively asking for a similar type of possibility for them, saying that everything, all of the critiques that they had heard of, and particularly from our first text about Teach for America, they were seeing themselves and experiencing themselves in their various different countries underneath the, the larger Teach for All umbrella. And of course, that can include uh, it's a Teach for and then fill in the blank country, generally speaking, using the English language. And so we slowly at that point, but we started to piece together this realization that not only did our first edition provide an outlet that was obviously necessary and integral to this national domestic conversation, but as Teach for America has expanded uh, and exported its sort of colonial approach to education across the globe, these core members across the globe or fellows uh, were experiencing the same things and in their conversations with us, you know, sort of informally, what they were seeing happening to the local communities and the students that they were teaching was nearly identical to what was happening uh, with Teach for America. And so we, we felt a, a sense of general obligation that if we were going to tell the story of Teach for America, that we could not ignore the organization's efforts to export that sort of very narrow market privatization controlling um, efforts towards pedagogy across the globe. And, and that's what brought us to piece together uh, effectively what you can call, I guess, a, a second volume of this text that expands this perspective beyond uh, the borders of the United States. So I guess maybe it would be helpful for some listeners to explain a little bit about, you know, what Teach for All is. So as Jameson uh, alluded to in some of his previous response, Teach for All is really the international arm of the domestic Teach for America program. And in that construct, what they're doing is they're taking sort of highly credentialed, sought after graduates from prestigious institutions, at least that's where it started, and training them over a relatively short five to six week sort of boot camp-esque training session, and then placing them in um, low or underperforming schools. And so the idea here is that these um, really well-regarded graduates are gonna come in and fix these inherent problems in that education system. Um, so it was initially expanded um, starting in 2008 with a couple, uh, I think four or five partnerships around the globe, and now they're in 54 countries on six of the seven continents. And I think one of the other important things to think about as we're talking about in conceptualizing Teach for All and even Teach for America is they're not actually a program designed to create teachers. Their explicit mission is to develop leaders and to develop leadership to fix the sort of problems of existing education systems. So does that mean they expect their recruits and core members to, to move beyond the classroom? or to be leaders inside the classroom? How does that, you know, how does being a leader and not a teacher actually play out? 
So, you know, they certainly uh, in their public marketing don't say not to stay in education, but I think that the the experience of many former core members speaks for themselves and that they typically don't remain in the classroom. The idea is that they're developing these leadership skills and then they're going to move into potentially leadership within a school building or a school system, into politics, into law, into entrepreneurship. One of the things, you know, if you peruse the Teach for All website um, is they offer the sort of dangling connections to some prestigious graduate schools that if you're a Teach for All participant, you know, you'll get extra scholarships and an extra um, special treatment at graduate schools. And if you look at the list, it is very impressive. It's Harvard, it's Stanford, it's Oxford, none of which are graduate programs in education. They're business schools and they're law schools, you know, so I, I think they're not they're not really training people up to be educators um, and leaders in the classroom if that happens it seems more incidental to their overall mission as opposed to purposeful huh interesting so it's like part of the cv building in a way like they're the these these applicants really do know what they want in the future and that might not include being a teacher forever absolutely so then is there any interest and appeal to the teaching profession that these, you know, applicants or, you know, I know we're speaking in generalities here, but, you know, it just seems like the way it's being painted is that a lot of these applicants are either naive and don't understand what's happening or they're sort of very strategic and just using teach for all and, you know, its affiliates to get to the next stage in their career development. I want to kind of build on what Kelly has said. I think we have to look back at TFA when it was first envisioned by Wendy Kopp. And this was in the late 80s and the early 90s. There was a tremendous critique of education and education schools. She called it the system dilapidated. The need was for these bright, well-educated, highly motivated people. And it was a time when there was a lot of volunteerism out there. So she really capitalized on this. And she recruited people from these highly selected colleges. The whole notion of this elite core was really important at the time. And with that two-year commitment and the economy wasn't the best, this was a way to have two years where they could delay any kind of job search, the challenge of you know searching for that corporate position right out of college. And so they could take a break. They were altruistic, 20-year-olds. And this was a resume builder. They were promised connections to corporate executives. COP was really well networked in. She was part of a network at Princeton that connected CEOs with the institution, with the organization. So I think this has a long history of a temporary organization that's a resume builder, the organization has connections to graduate schools. There's all kinds of benefits to people going into this. But at the same time, there is a bit of naivete. And, you know, 20-year-olds want to do things that give back. They want to help the community. And this was one way of doing it. I think that, you know, this is not a new idea. People went to the Peace Corps. People went to VISTA. People went to AmeriCorps right out of college. So this is not a novel idea, 
but it has been built into this mega organization. It's interesting. I mean, so how many of these narratives that you received, are they typically 20-something-year-olds writing into you? Or is it upon, like, reflection after many years, thinking back at, at their experience in, in Teach for All? I think that would be um, that reflection. One thing about narrative work is that people live through it, think about it, move on to something, and when they're ready, they can critique it. They can look critically at the experience. Yeah. So what were some of the critiques that, um, you know, some of these, these applicants or these core, former core members offered? So I, I think one, and this is sort of going back to your, uh, your initial question as well about naivete. And I, I think some of the participants, you know, have come to teach for all, uh, as Kathleen was saying, out of a desire to do something good. And I think it taps into this larger narrative that many societies have around teachers as saviors and the idea that I'm going to go in and I'm going to save these kids from themselves. They have a terrible life. They have a, a terrible school. You know, I'm going to I'm going to care about them in a way that other people don't. And I'm going to go in and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to really be that person for them. And I think that comes from a really wholesome place. But I think it's also a very problematic narrative that's perpetuated by society and the media. Um, and so I think, you know, when they're coming to this, I think they're coming often with very good intentions. And I think sometimes it, it, what we um, sort of saw in the narratives is those intentions were very quickly disillusioned, right? So they they came in very optimistic and, and, and very excited. And then they realized in many cases, some more quickly than others, that this was not quite the, the sort of utopian panacea that was promised. And that in many cases, they felt like they, they weren't achieving um, the goals that they set out in terms of helping students or in terms, in some cases, of helping themselves. You know, some of them had some really um, negative experiences in the schools because there are a lot of conflicts that come as well between traditionally trained teachers and teachers who are coming through these sort of fast-track programs and the sort of inherent conflict that can come, um, that can come between those two groups as well. Huh, interesting. So the, the sort of discourse that they might have bought into during the application stage quickly changes once they they hit the ground inside classrooms and start teaching and realize that it's not exactly as uh, Teach for All might have purported. And some seem to come to that that conclusion relatively quickly. Uh, like, for example, the Argentina narrative, um, it, it was a co-written piece, and one of the authors was saying from, you know, sort of week two or three of the six-week boot camp, they were starting to question, uh, and they were starting to have doubts. And then there were others who are, you know, five years out of their experience and only upon reflection have now said, now that I've lived all of the rest of this part of my life, I now question my decision to have participated, you know, years ago. Which, which I think is, is something I, that I notice across both the, the texts that we have, but also from my own personal experiences with the organization. We, there's a chapter in our first book that part of the, the title of the chapter is Bait and Switch. And so I think it speaks back to what uh, both Kathleen and Kelly are, are, are reflecting on here is that these core members or these alumni are being reflective in their process. And, and I just want to say uh, how brave I think it is for these individuals to speak out 
because I, I agree with Kathleen, most core members uh, or fellows across it through Teach for All, I, I generally believe that they go into this work uh, with a sense of wanting to do good and with good intentions. And I think that it's it's very difficult to reflect back on that experience and realize that the organization might be nefarious uh, and it might be doing harm. And But in particular, recognizing that as an individual affiliated with that, having to deal with the questions of how, what does that mean for my role in this process? And so I think that it, it takes a lot of courage to reflect critically on that organization, but in particular an organization where you felt to begin with that you were doing good and, and now you're reflecting that maybe the organization itself uh, is doing harm and what that means about your relationship with that. And again, that's, it's very difficult to be reflective on their own, uh, to think back through these experiences, and that, that's not uh, exclusive to Teach for America or Teach for All, but then to be able to do so uh, from this, this point of realization uh, that the organization likely is doing some harm, uh, it's a multi, multi-level process, I think, that, that people come to, and, and we have plenty of core members and alums from across the, the globe reach out to us and, and share their stories, but I had not yet come uh, to be comfortable sharing them just for their own p- personal reasons. But we also had individuals who wanted to share their stories, but for fear of what their reflectivity might mean, they asked about using pseudonyms uh, for fear of reprisals from both organizations. And so again, uh, just to, to put a pin on this point, I want to be very clear about how brave and courageous I think it is to speak out against a multi, multi-million dollar company uh, about the role that the organization plays uh, in perhaps doing harm for students. I mean, it sounds like they're, the, the, many of the authors are in a sense being whistleblowers. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I'm agreeing with um, both Kelly and Jameson here. I was struck when some of the narratives came back and some were a little more muted in their voices than others, but some, particularly the one from Argentina, they, they just came right out and said around the whole program, from the CEO to the trainers, they knew almost nothing about education or the vulnerable communities they sent members to. So that six-week training, and this really jumps to the how, how the program works out in, in practice here. From that six-week training, that wasn't about pedagogy. That wasn't about translating or helping um, these individuals take that content knowledge they may or may not have had and really work with students in these under-resourced communities because the trainers didn't know the communities. They don't know pedagogy. And so you've got you've got this situation where they're building this solidarity within the group, and then they're being asked to work on this uh, accountability model where the, the fellows themselves are being held accountable for the, the learning of these students, many of whom were from communities where that wasn't really gonna be possible. These fellows weren't able to do what needed to be done. They didn't have the pedagogical skills to do that. They didn't have the resources to do it. And they were being blamed if they didn't make gains on their tracking sheets. So, you know, it was, it's built on a corporate model. And I think 
those narratives we have, the individuals saw through that model. It wasn't what they wanted. They really wanted to be in the communities, but didn't have the tools to be able to work effectively with those communities. Hmm. And it seems, it really seems like this corporate model in a way that sort of promotes a one size fits all solution to pretty much any education problem, it seems like. Obviously, is decontextualized and therefore quite problematic in reality. And it sounds like that's what a lot of these these authors that you have in your collection and maybe even more of, of people that you've received emails from and letters from, uh, it seems like, you know, there is this real understanding of socioeconomic contexts truly matter in the way education operates in a given society. And I think that, you know, there's there's always been this sort of surface level treatment of what it means for students to come from those sort of lower socioeconomic and, and, and marginalized cultural backgrounds. And again, that, that merges with the core members' hope to do good. The question then, of course, uh, should be, uh, to what extent are those groups being exploited uh, to provide a platform for these individuals, often from well-to-do prestigious backgrounds that don't uh, match up or align with the communities that they're teaching? How, how is it possible that, that their presence there, and not just being there, but being there in sort of an educational malpractice way, uh, how does that exploit the very groups of communities and students that the organization professes uh, to help, and, and in fact, uh, perhaps was the reason that, that members wanted to be affiliated in the first place. And I think that that's uh, something that both the organization, uh, both of them, uh, the domestic and international uh, community partners that partner with these organizations, but all of us uh, as key stakeholders in education really need to ask about the sort of predatory nature of corporate influence and corporate paradigms pushing into these vulnerable communities uh, across the globe. I'm going to jump in. I think it benefits the corporations. It benefits um, people in the government who don't want to do things structurally. So because TFA and TFL run on this meritocratic ideology, that gives everybody a pass. We don't have to look at the structural inequalities in communities and schools. We just have to have you know, a program like this where they're going to go in and promise great results but there's no structural analysis there at all of poverty, of defunding these schools and communities. Which can be obviously so different across contexts. Yes. So when you think about your two books, you know, the, the book on Teach for America and the counter narratives there, and then this one on Teach for All and some of the counter narratives, they are similar programs, if not the same. It, I think, Jameson, you said earlier, Teach for X, insert country name. But are there any differences that sort of jumped out at you when you were reading these these narratives? Uh, that that's a difficult question. I I, I think that it's it's clear that um, the similarities are what are glaringly apparent. To be honest with you, the most obvious difference between the the, the text and the experiences across the the members affiliated with with our first and second volume. 
uh, is literally, for the most part, the context in which it's happening, uh, whether that is across the United States. And we were very intentional with our first text about getting a, a good geographic representation of Teach for America uh, domestically in the United States, as well as being intentional about uh, doing our best to get a good geographic uh, representation across the globe with Teach for All. But outside of the, the unique and specific context in which these uh, core members find themselves, it's difficult to suggest that there are massive or even uh, small differences between the approach uh, because the, effectively the recruitment, the training, uh, the sort of dispositions uh, that include a lot of deficit ideologies about um, marginalized students, uh, whether that's uh, race-based or whether it's class-based, uh, it is pretty standard uh, across both organizations. And again, I think that, um, you know, a, a Big Mac uh, made by McDonald's here in the United States, uh, you know, will likely might be called something different in another country and might have a little bit of a, a cultural or contextual tweak to it. But effectively, the goal of that corporation is to make the experience uh, for the consumer the exact same because the, the very standardized one-size-fits-all approach uh, to how they make hamburgers. And I think that Teach for America's approach and how they think about not just students, but how they think about the world uh, and the world that they want to reform uh, is, is standardized uh, across the globe. And so outside of those small cultural or contextual nuances, uh, the experiences, both uh, from the Teach for America and Teach for All corporate side, as well as those from the uh, the teachers who join them, are effectively identical. And again, that's that that's by design. Now, I, you know, I have to ask: Have you heard from Teach for All since the publication of this book? How have they reacted to it? The reaction from the second volume has been noticeably muted compared to the first. Uh, as I said, our, our first book specifically included a section about how Teach for America responds to criticism. And in fact, sort of to reinforce that point, when I, that first book came out, uh, they spent a good deal of time and money critiquing and attacking the book and the individuals in it. With this text, it's been almost silent. And two things. Uh, I, I was uh, contacted a few times uh, by the research department at Teach for All, once they heard that we were developing this book, asking sort of the production schedule of the book, uh, they were very interested to know uh, particularly which countries, which of their uh, partner affiliations that we would be including chapters on. My engagement with them was uh, courteous and respectful, um, not intentionally vague, but of course when you're developing this book and of course their narratives, we had individuals who, again, as I've already mentioned, sort of were fearful and wanted to pull their chapters and things like that. So my interactions and communications with them were as honest as they could be at the time. Since the book has come out, I've not heard anything from Teach for All, and I've, and I've not seen any sort of official stance or statement from the organization. And I think that in some ways, that's sort of a response to the negative feedback that they got from the first time that we, we went into this relationship with them with our first chapter. There was um, a couple of um, pieces that came out by uh, Nonprofit Quarterly uh, who specifically critiqued Teach for America's response to our first book. Uh, they pointed out that, again, the book raises some serious questions about how Teach for America tries to marginalize and silence dissenting voices 
and their response to that was to try to marginalize and silence the voices. And so this sort of even outside of the education world sort of started, you know, not pointing a finger, but raising some questions for Teach for America of if you're doing what they're saying you're doing, you can't then say you're not doing it. Uh, and so I think to some extent, uh, the negative feedback that they got uh, from uh, the world for their sort of harsh uh, response to our first text likely has um, informed them to be very muted uh, with, with our second text. I think we need to consider how well funded this organization is. I've done some work early on and looked at the just the foundation funding for TFA, and this would have been from about 2000 to 2011. And during that time, they generated $267 million in grants from various organizations, such as Fidelity and the Dell Foundation and Broad. And that's just part of the funding. Now, I haven't tracked that since 2011, but this is a huge organization that's highly highly thought of by the wealthy philanthropists and Congress. Uh, they're able to leverage congressional funds for the field experiences and so on. So for our authors to write these narratives in the face of that kind of a, an organization, as Jameson said, takes a lot of courage and I'm just really thankful that these individuals could step forward and resist this huge organization and begin to get the word out that this is not all that it could be or that it prom promises to be. It's important to echo the precarious position that some of these individuals are in um, because as we've been discussing, there there is a very strong network, not only of funding, but also, you know, one of the things that the Teach for All website promotes is because this is a quote leadership development program, you know, they'll say, oh, we have 30 members, uh, you know, who work in the ministry in Chile or, you know, they have these sort of broad political connections in the countries in which they're also operating. So it's it's not even just, I think, I just think it's an important to reaffirm what Jameson and Kathleen are saying, that the, the willingness of these individuals to come forward with a critique is um, very noteworthy. And I think it would be good to see more of this moving forward, but I think there's also an inherent risk depending on what position you're still in within the country. Are you still a practicing teacher? What sort of liability are you exposing yourself to by critiquing this incredibly powerful and far-reaching organization? Yeah, it's so fascinating because you have, you know, the Teach for All or Teach for America obviously has deep political connections at many different levels in America. But now Teach for All seems to be establishing those sort of connections in all different countries, plus at these sort of global level at the World Bank, places probably like the UN. And so, you know, the, the political power and might seems to be rising. And so the, the stakes are seeming seemingly higher. So yeah, I mean, it's amazing that people stepped forward and wanted to write. And it's, it's a really fantastic book. So congratulations on being able to pull it together. And I hope 
you can get more narratives from more countries to keep showing, you know, an alternative narrative to teach for all. So Jameson Brewer, Kathleen Desmarais, and Kelly McFadden, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. Jameson Brewer is an assistant professor at the University of North Georgia, where Kelly McFadden is a professor. Kathleen Desmarais is a professor and department head at the University of Georgia. Their new co-edited volume is entitled Teach for All Counter Narratives. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.